a protege of Clifford Curzon and Vladimir Horowitz, Belgian-American pianist Ted Joselson made his debut with the Philadelphia Orchestra in 1974 at the young age of 17. Specializing in romantic virtuoso repertory, while still a student at Juilliard, Joselson was signed to a recording contract with the RCA Red Seal label, where he released a series of LPs, and the pianist quickly became a sought-after concerto soloist and recital performer, appearing with some of the world's most important symphonic ensembles and conductors. His remarkable run included the 1975 debut at New York's Lincoln Center Great Performers Series. After retiring in 1999, Ted Joselson returned to performing and in 2021 signed on with Signum Classics to release a pair of new albums, his London Symphony recording of Manu Martin's Limb Fantasy of Companionship as well as his Companionship of Concertos recording, featuring both the Royal Philharmonic and Philharmonia Orchestra in works by Grieg and Rachmaninoff. Ted Joselson is here with us to discuss these two 2021 releases. Hi, Ted. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, Max. Nice to be with you, and thank you for inviting me. Ted, the companionship of concertos presents two of your favorite pieces, the Greek Piano Concerto and Rachmaninoff's Second Piano Concerto. Let's dig into both of these pieces a bit. When nationalism emerged as a major force within the 19th century romantic musical style, it attracted artists from areas that were subservient to foreign powers. For them, nationalism was an expression of their unique cultural heritage, and Edvard Grieg stands above them all. Composed in 1868, do you feel that Grieg's A minor concerto reflects this type of nationalistic feeling? It's a very, very interesting question. If you've been to Grieg's house in Bergen, you get a very, very strong feeling of how Mr. Grieg must have felt. So I guess the answer to your question is yes. And I do feel that composers do represent their countries in very, very special ways, which they feel because they grew up there. I know you can say the same thing very much, for, certainly for Sibelius, the great Finnish composer, the same thing for Dvorak. Germanic music is very, very Germanic. So I would say yes, Grieg's music is definitely very Norwegian. Among the most popular of all piano concerti, the piece is the only concerto Grieg ever completed. He was only 25 when he wrote it, but in terms of writing for the concerto form, it seems to exhibit a high degree of maturity and is considered to be his most significant work in terms of power and gesture. I feel that the Greek piano concerto actually is one of the most perfectly written and certainly one of the most beautiful romantic piano concertos there is. In fact, Rachmaninoff himself preferred the Greek piano concerto over any other piano concerto. He loved it very much. And great performers, for instance, Rubinstein, Gillels, Richter, every one of them. I mean, the Greek has a very, very special place in our hearts because it just goes directly. There's nothing phony about it. It's just a marvelous piece of music from the very, very first note to the very last note. It's got all kinds of marvelous rhythms in it and beautiful melodies, and it's written for the orchestra magnificently, and it's written for the piano in a great way. It's just a great piece.
I have a very special relationship to it because I started to play when I was very, very young. It's one of the five or six or ten, whatever, concertos that I actually took with me during my entire career, which lasted 37 years until I retired. So it was really great fun. The same thing with actually the Rachmaninoff number two. And I gave that first performance in Detroit for 50 people. I remember it very well. It was an outdoor concert. And I was 14 or 13 or 14 at the time with the orchestra in Detroit. It was great fun. It was the first time I ever played a huge piano concerto. That one has also stayed with me during my entire career. So I guess, I, you know, you have certain love affairs with certain pieces, just like with certain people. I guess there were certain concertos you let go for whatever reasons, just like human relations. There are certain people you like to let go, that kind of thing. But those two certainly stayed with me right to this very day, which is why I selected them to be the companion concertos to the, the great new limb fantasy, which I love very much. As you know, the piece is often compared to Robert Schumann's piano concerto. Both composers only wrote one concerto for piano. Grieg had heard Schumann's concerto played by Clara Schumann in 1858. What do you attribute this comparison to? course they're both in A minor and it's very interesting you should say that because I was very close to doing the Schumann with the Greek because the Schumann is also one of those pieces that I took with me during my entire career and I will I'm planning to do it at some point actually in the near future but the way the pieces are constructed is actually quite similar and the way the piano's relationship to the orchestra in both concertos is very very similar they are very soloistic instruments they do not overwhelm the orchestra. You know, there are some piano concertos, especially when you get to the Prokofiev's and Scrabman and things like that, when you get to the very super colossal works for piano, that they can overwhelm an orchestra. But these pieces are, in a certain kind of a sense, they're very Mozartian. In other words, they're very dialogue -y. They speak to the instruments in a very intimate kind of a way. And Schumann, of course, does that very much. And then Clara Schumann, who was Robert Schumann's wife, of course, did give the first performance of that piece. And it's a known fact, as you just mentioned, that Greek did hear her play the piece and love the piece very, very much. And there are certain similarities, which, of course, musicians feel right away. It's a very interesting point. Now, Grieg revised the work quite a bit from the original orchestration, mostly in subtle ways, and of course the final version was only completed a few weeks before his death, and it was this version that has achieved worldwide popularity. Let's discuss the piece a bit. The first movement, Allegro Molto Moderato, is noted for the opening's well-known timpani role, followed by the brilliantly descending piano passage, which sets the stage for what follows, a succession of lyrical, reflective, and dramatic themes which extend throughout the three movements. Well, the opening, of course, is very, very dramatic because, as you just said, that they, you have that marvelous timpani that starts piano and makes a big, huge crescendo, and then the, the piano comes crashing in on that massive A minor chord at the top of the piano and 
cascades down in octaves and chords all the way down to the very, very lowest note on the piano, and then scoops right back up to the top, and then a few little five, seven chords and six, four chords between here and there, and then comes that dum, dum, da dum, bum. lovely beautiful tune which plays games like playing tennis with the orchestra it just goes very nicely and then of course leading ultimately into that glorious cadenza which is sometimes takes two pianos to play because it's so difficult and with those inner voices in the right hand and those sweeping arpeggios in the left hand it's really quite dramatic and great super fun to play what happens at the very very end of the first movement is that there's almost like a recap in other words a repeat in a way of what happens at the very beginning of the piece then you have the same thing except what happens then is you go down and then you go up the first movement crashes down in just an absolutely magnificent a minor chords all over the place just splendid
the second movement, of course, is one of the most beautiful second movements of any piano concerto. I think it's just glorious. very, very fortunate in London that the great David Pyatt came in actually to play for us. And if you listen to the recording, you're going to definitely hear some of the greatest horn playing there is on record. It's spellbinding. He's got the way of bringing the entire orchestra into his lap. It's just incredible. And so, of course, when I heard that sound coming from the back of the orchestra, I knew we were in the presence of genius. And we just all sat there mesmerized and we played just marvelously. I think we did the entire second movement in one take. It was just that beautiful. It was simply great. In fact, I'm very proud to say that we actually finished recording the Greek concerto in just a few hours. It just went that well. It was just like very, very fluent. But so what you hear on the recording actually is practically a performance, which is quite rare and quite unusual. You know, sometimes miracles happen in studios. Everything fell into place. You know, I hadn't played with these orchestras in many, many years, so it was like an old homecoming for me. And I think that the orchestra seemed very happy in a way to see me again, alive and kicking. So we had a wonderful relationship, and I think that added a lot to the flavor and to the naturalness, I shall say, and to the spontaneity of the performances. One thing I've always been very fussy about in my recordings, which were not live performances, I've always wanted studio performances to sound like live performances. And if it doesn't sound that way to me when I'm listening back or when they send me the test pressings or whatever, then I would never let it be released, which is probably why there are literally hundreds of recordings of mine, which are still now sitting in my vaults. But these just came out spontaneously, wonderfully, and I'm just totally happy with them. And of course, that lyrical melancholy adagio in D-flat major second movement leads right into the allegro, where you really start to hear the color and the movement of the Norwegian folk dance. Exactly. And of course, that Norwegian folk dance and the way the Greek fools around with it and plays around with it and all the interplay between the orchestra and the piano in that last movement, which really goes like a house on fire. You know, actually, when I was playing it in London, because I haven't played that piece in 25 years, when I was playing it again, I realized it's really actually quite difficult. 
It's not something that you can just sit down and play again without touching the piano. But even during my retirement, which has been 20 odd years, I've actually been practicing and working every day and coaching this one and that one and playing once in a while when I feel like it. But it's a difficult technical challenge. And of course, to put yourself up on that level with great orchestras and a great conductor and great setup. I mean, we did those recordings in London at the Great Abbey Road Studio One. You know, you've got a big responsibility just to live up to that standard alone, which is really not something to be taken lightly. So the, yes, but that last movement of the Grieg, as you say, it's really quite a dancing, wonderful thing. I think that if I ever wanted to be a dance band leader, I think I would want to make a version of that last movement of the Grieg to have everybody just jumping up from the tables and going to the dance floor and having a good time, because it certainly suits the style. You mentioned Liszt. Of course, Liszt championed the work, and it was Liszt who was largely responsible for making it one of the most frequently performed of all the piano concertos. Absolutely. Liszt, of course, was the first person who ever gave a piano recital. He was the creator of the piano recital, and his music doesn't need any comments because it's just overwhelming. And his relationship to Wagner and the feeling of the music, the orchestration. It's very similar, actually. When you go back and you listen to it and you hear, let's say, Gotterdammerung, or if you hear the Rheingold, or if you hear the Dante fantasy, the Liszt piano fantasy, the harmonic progressions and the musical integrity is very stable. And that's, I think, one of the things that I love so much about those two particular pieces. For instance, in number three, Rachmaninoff, which I probably played even more than number two, and maybe even the Rhapsody even more than that, they are a little bit more disparate. They don't quite have that tremendous continuity of style. There are things in that piece which you really need to be tremendously creative for in order to hold it together to give it this oomph that you need on the stage. when you're on the stage you're on the stage you can't um, you know pretend and say listen I'm sorry ladies and gentlemen I'll come back in a few minutes and try again you really just have to get it done and, but number two and the Greek together concertos like list number one for instance definitely list number two and certainly all the Mozart piano concertos right down the line from there obviously in Beethoven's one, two, three, four, and five Brahms one Brahms two these things just work the way they're written if you have a big personality and if you have a great vision of what it is you want to do what it is you want to gift to the music, what it is you feel the music gives to you, and you have a way of incorporating that into such a way that you can give it back to the audience in a way that makes them feel like they've had a real musical experience. That's all we can do. And if you've done that, even if you're comfortable with that, or even if you're not comfortable with that, but if it works for them, you have a success. And these two concertos have been able to do that right from the beginning. So that's why we chose them. Okay, well, let's move to the Rachmaninoff Piano Concerto Number no. 2 in C minor, Opus 18. The piece was written right at the turn of the 20th century, and as one of Rachmaninoff's most enduring pieces, this was really the piece that established Rachmaninoff's fame as a concerto composer. 
And it was written after he had a psychoanalysis. In fact, he dedicated to a psychiatrist, Dr. Dahl. And that was the beginning, of course, of Rachmaninoff's explosive career. Not only a super great composer, but also some people will swear to this day that Rachmaninoff was the greatest pianist of the century. And if you listen to some of Rachmaninoff's recordings, you can see why. Because, I mean, my God, what that man did with the piano is just incredible. But the Rachmaninoff second also has got a great statement. You know, the minute you put your hands on the keys and you play that first F minor chord and you those low Fs and you just kind of build it and you build it, it becomes something of an experience. sun starts to come up and you can start to see life coming back and the birds start chirping away and then all of a sudden you see people starting to move around and life renews itself in a way. When you start the beginning of the Rachmaninoff 2, it's like life beginning again. You start from nothing, a super piano chord in F minor, and you keep going, 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 and then you crash down in C minor with that magnificent C minor melody which made into a million movies by now. And the Rachmaninoff number 2 actually plays very, very well. It's not one of these pieces that you have to figure out many, many things to make it work. Unlike, let's say, Bartok number 2. Bartok number 2, you've got to analyze, reanalyze, turn upside down, figure out inside out and so on and so forth. But the Rachmaninoff too, if you understand the style and if you feel, and if you have any Russian feeling whatsoever inside of you, and you know the nostalgia that was involved with the people that had to leave Russia, of course, because of the programs and the nonsense that was going on in Russia in those days. And of course, they all came first to Paris and then some of them went to Switzerland and most of them ended up in New York. You identify with the music in such a way so that you almost feel like you're being transported at the same time with them. not just playing their music, but you're living inside of them. And you're actually feeling pathos and the terrible situations. And they didn't know what was going to happen with them when they came away. Of course, they knew that they were great talents. And of course, that they knew that they could play the piano very well and they could compose very well. Same thing with Mr. Horowitz. He didn't know what would happen when he left with Maravich. And it was only because he was having tea in a little restaurant somewhere in Berlin and somebody canceled the concert and they happened to know that Maravich was Mr. Horowitz's manager. And so they said, can Mr. Horowitz quickly run in and play the track? Tchaikovsky piano concerto car soloist can't do it tonight. And so Mr. Merovitz said, sure, why not? So Mr. Horowitz put down his cup of tea, went over and played the Tchaikovsky piano concerto. Of course, launched probably the greatest piano career in history. So you see these things happen. But that only happened because he had nostalgia. He had the feeling of the Tchaikovsky, which of course is very, very similar in feeling, extremely similar in feeling to the Rachmaninoff number two, which is another piece I was thinking of coupling with that. But you know, you can't do everything at the same time, especially at my age, which is now 70. So I've got to be a little bit careful how I budget my energy, as you can well imagine. Now, the sort of unstable development 
the changing keys very often. While each theme is focused on a particular tonality, the device seems to indicate a degree of chromaticism. Yes, you can say it's chromaticism, but they're actually, it's a minor chord, then it's a minor chord with a raised six, then it's another raised six, then it's another raised six, and now we're going into a five seven chord, then it goes back down and does the same thing till you get to the C minor. sounds very chromaticized so i can understand that you're saying that and you're absolutely right it really is that kind of a feeling but i don't think that rachmaninoff thought about that i think he just wanted to open up the world at that moment and he did and it just happens these things happen just like whoever would have thought of the beethoven four let's say that all of a sudden you know everybody was used to having an orchestra play at the opening of a piano concerto whoever would have thought that beethoven would start all of a sudden with a just a sublime g major chord which then brings on this most incredible piano concerto after that I mean, it's just these things happen. I can't tell you what Rachmaninoff felt, but I can certainly tell you that that's the feeling that he gives to me. And that is the feeling that I like to give to my audiences. Start super piano, let those chords, as you say, if they're chromatic, fine. If they're chromatic forward chords, if that's how you feel them, as long as they tell a story. And as long as you feel that you're living an experience, you're not listening to somebody play something, but you can close your eyes and you can say, wow, that was something. My greatest moments after concerts around the world are when people come back to me. And I'll never forget this, which I think was in Los Angeles. When a woman came back once to me after I played there, she must have been 90 years old and she was walking with a cane and she could barely move. And she just came backstage and she said to me, Maestro, I just want you to know that for the last two hours, you made me not think of any of my problems. It was just the most beautiful thing. You know, when somebody says something like that, then maybe what I'm doing is right, you know. But, you know, let's face it, playing a concert is really like buying a lottery ticket. You never know what's going to happen. And sometimes something happens, you know, like you find a little delight here in the music or a little delight there in the music that's completely unexpected. You don't even expect to do yourself. But you have to close your eyes and just let it happen and enjoy the experience. And that's what I hope everybody's going to enjoy these performances. It was a labor of love, I can tell you, especially coming on the heels of the limb fantasy, which is a very, very special place in my art. Now that second movement, that Adagio Sostenuto, it opens with that simple arpeggiated figure in the piano, and the modulation is interesting from C minor to E major. Exactly, you're absolutely right. You would not expect it to go from C minor to E major, but he does it, and he does it very effectively, and you're not really aware of that. And C major is bum, 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 bum. I don't think they're even related, but if they are, fine. But that E major, as you say, the arpeggiated part, it's very, very subtle. in the middle of the movement there's that great chromatic thing I like to think of it sort of like as a witch's dance sort of like the same thing in the third piano concerto in the third movement when all of a sudden everything changes and you've got you're running up and down arpeggios and C sharp major and, da -da -da, and then you end up in that big E major scale which used to give me a heart attack that E major scale I remember once I was playing it in Houston and the conductor of that orchestra shall remain anonymous who was guest conducting but he was a great friend of mine and he said I'm afraid I'm not going to get you I'm not going to catch you at the top of that run so I said why wouldn't you catch me I'm just doing it in two bam, bam. 
pam, pam, which is a very, very simple thing to follow. He said, no, I can't feel it that way. He said, I can only feel it in three. So I said, three, how can I divide something like that into three? He said, just do it for me. So I tried it and of course I couldn't do it. And I tried it again and of course I still couldn't do it. I never got it. So anyway, I went back to the hotel. I'm trying to think to myself, now how am I going to do this thing in three? So I kept on trying and trying and still couldn't do it in three. So by the time the concert came that night, I went down to the theater and I said, listen, I cannot do it in three. He said, please do it in three. Kept on sticking me. Two it and three. So you know what? I got so nervous one bar before the thing, I just left it out. I just said, forget about this. I just can't do it in three. And afterwards he said, you know, you played it so well. <laughs> didn't even play it, but to him it was fine. I'm glad I didn't play it because I think it would have been a disaster. And then, of course, the last movement, the Sherizando, modulates back from E major to C minor before the piano leads back to the original agitated first theme. Exactly. You know that Rachmaninoff was in Hollywood and Walt Disney wanted him to write music for his movies. But Rachmaninoff, of course, never did that because he was very, very proud of the output that he did and he didn't want to get involved in movies, you know, in those days. And he never did, unlike Prokofiev, because Prokofiev, of course, did write the movie scores, you know, for things like War and Peace and so on, which became, you know, massive, tremendous classics. But Rachmaninoff never did that. And then, of course, you have that famous theme in the middle of it, which has been adapted into so many movies. sentiment of the the second theme of the, the C minor piano concerto in the last movement is super romantic and could obviously be and has been used as soundtracks in movies many many times so i guess Walt Disney knew what he was talking about Music Magazine paid you a nice compliment that you applied the right rubato to that big tune of the finale. If you overplay Rachmaninoff or if you over roboticize, then you make the music sound very cheap.
listened to Rachmaninoff's own recordings, they were very straightforward. He barely moved from the metronomic meters. And since we've got his recordings of all of the five piano concertos, he did three of them with Ormandy and two of them with Stokowski. He did them all with the Philadelphia. And I did them all with that orchestra also. And I remember even with Ormandy, I was always having this discussion. You know, when you're young, you like to add a little bit of spice to it. You know, just a little bit here and there. And he would always come right down to me and say, you know, Mr. Rachmaninoff didn't like it like that. I say, yeah, you know, but maybe Mr. Rachmaninoff was a little bit older. Ah, he said, but Mr. Rachmaninoff was still the creator. And we still really should come as close to what he wanted as possible. So, of course, that's what I did. And then as I got older and played it more and more, I tried to pull together the romantic side of it. In other words, to do things through color rather than through tempo distortion. Because if you have tempo distortion, then the music doesn't have a way of flowing in a natural way. And I think that's really what he meant. And I was very, very strong about that. And, you know, whoever plays for me, when they try to go out and play that piece with an orchestra, I always try to do the same. I always try to suggest to them that they curtail excessiveness and they try to make things as flow as naturally and as calmly as possible. Let's move to the other 2021 Signum Records release you participated in, The Limb Fantasy of Companionship for Piano and Orchestra, composed by Manu Martin and created by Dr. Susan Lim and Dr. Christina Teens Tan. You are the featured pianist with the London Symphony and the London Voices, conducted by Arthur Fagan. The press release for this recording states, Society currently finds itself at an intersection of technology and humanity. What were your thoughts when you were asked to participate in a project surrounding this theme? Oh, I was fascinated with it. I was very fortunate in being involved, actually, from the very first day. I was aware of Susan's work in the medical community. and I had many, many discussions with her, the significance of loneliness and companionship. And what happened was I went to London and on my way to New York to listen to the recordings of the songs, which the fantasy is based on, all of which are quite remarkable. And then what happened was Susan went and asked Manu Martin, who's a marvelous French composer, to pull everything together into a piano fantasy using the thematic material from those songs. I was involved in it because the relevance to what's happening today is just very significant. Go all the way back to Mozart. Mozart didn't write his pieces without De Ponte, right? De Ponte wrote all the lyrics for his operas. If then you jump over to Strauss, I mean, Strauss was born, what, 30 or 40 years after Mozart died. Then he did everything with Hofmannsthal, right? Hofmannsthal wrote all the lyrics for Lectra and Salome and so on and so forth. Then you go to, let's say, Rogers and Hammerstein. Rogers, of course, wrote the music. Hammerstein wrote the words. So you got this kind of cross-fertilization going on. Then you go a little bit further and you've got, of course, Bernstein and that group doing things like Westside and so on and so forth. So the team of Susan and Christina with Manu and my contribution in the piano part, which is actually very, very significant because the piano part is actually what the piano fantasy is all built around.
you don't know this story, you can listen to the Lim Fantasy for Piano and Orchestra as a piano concerto. And as a piano concerto, it stands magnificently by itself. It's a massive tour de force. And I tell you from that very, very first note, which kind of tingles away to that crashing chord to the very end of the piece, it's just a mind-blowing experience. sitting right here and I hope she's gonna help me out a little bit here because she knows much more about the oranges of this piece than I do. Knowing Ted and having seen Ted imbibe the original songs that Abby wrote, which Ted just described, he came and listened to the songs that then underlie and gave rise to the tracks of the fantasy. I realized that Ted was not a person in retirement. Ted was a person with the most open of minds. And the very pianist that we sought for a cross-genre piece like the fantasy, that would convey artificial intelligence through the music, that would have the genetic code of the inanimate embedded in the music and expressed as melodies and harmonies that would have the physics of quantum teleportation and the synthetic biology embedded in the music. I couldn't think of a better pianist than Ted Josephson and I'll have to admit I pursued him and I had to get Ted to play the fantasy. But I'm a novice at this game. I am the creator the fantasy and Manuel Martin is the composer but this was my absolute first foray into music and it was very precious coming from a career in medicine and surgery that I get it right because it was a very important message to convey that the companionship between human and inanimate is the companionship of the future and this message I needed somebody with intellect with musical genius with strength with commitment and with the persona of Ted to lead. Ted and I are very similar. Both of us are soloists, he a pianist and me a surgeon, but we are totally reliant on an orchestra for Ted and for me, an operating team. So we could communicate day one and I'm just thrilled that Ted came on board.
what thrilled me was the reaction of the London Symphony, because after all, when I usually play with the London Symphony, it's, you know, Brahms or Rachmaninoff or Prokofiev or Mozart and so on, Barber and, so, and all those things, many of which I recorded with them. But what thrilled me was the reaction of the orchestra to this marvelous piece of music. You know, the London Symphony Orchestra has got an enormous tradition, as you know. I mean, who hasn't played with them? Everybody over the last hundred years, whatever. And they just really, they ate it up, which was kind of like a validation. I feel that we should all be very, very proud of that because we put in an enormous effort and it was just great from day one. The minute we sat down with the orchestra, I can say, honestly, nothing went wrong. It just from the very minute we started to the very minute we finished those great now historic sessions, it was like a miracle. Fantasy, of course, drew its inspiration from those 15 original songs composed for the musical titled Alan, a story about the journey of Alan, twice teleported from an animate to inanimate and ultimately into a human being. The hope is that the limb fantasy will inspire a discussion about what is life and what is non-life. absolutely true. I mean, this is a very profound piece of music and one that Ted has communicated so well to the outside world. Increasingly today and right now, in fact, as we speak, we do have synthetic life. We have synthetic biology and going forward, it's going to be a way of life that humans and inanimates bestowed with either artificial life or artificial intelligence are going to have to live side by side. And the whole idea of conveying this piece of uh, information through music was not to do it in a frightening sort of way, not to present it as a fearsome science fiction with robots and metal and all that, but to convey it through music, through the beauty of the fantasy and for it to reach the public at large and to open up a discussion about what is life and what is not life. I can think of no better way to discuss this than to describe what happened in Studio One on the day of recording. 
had the most magnificent team. We had the 78-piece London Symphony Orchestra, 36-member choir ensemble of London Voices, Arthur Fagan, of course, Ted Josephson, myself, and I had the privilege of sitting slightly behind and to the right of Ted Josephson. And I was really imbibing the whole spirit and the ambience. And in the control room, I could see Manu Martin and I could see the sound engineers. And up on the balcony, I could see the executive producer, Deepak Sharma, and each and every one of the composers who contributed to the 15 original songs which formed the tracks. The spirit was electrifying. But what made it so special was Ted is a pianist of this generation. He belongs to the now and even to the future because he sat there and in Act 4, the electric guitar came in and led Ted Josephson. <laughs> let the electric guitar lead the entire orchestra and Ted into the most amazing piece, which I think is very aptly titled New World Order. And then Ted went on and he played with the London voices singing the genetic code A, T, G and C. And Ted was fine with that. And then he had a voice of the inanimate come in and sing teleportation. Science has been done. Objects merged in an instant. And at that point in time, it was like, wow, Ted came crashing into the piano, into the music. It was the most rapturous finale. It was every single piece, every single musician being led by Ted to the most amazing crescendo. amazing finale and all this time we also had the life-size portrait of the inanimate seated right in front and that was what it was like in studio one on the 19th of november 2019 i'm recording with 
God knows how many orchestras, how many times over the years. Do you know that the London Symphony Orchestra gave us a standing ovation at the end of that session? They were just quite overwhelmed. I mean, the people of the orchestra surrounded us. I remember the principal cellist came over and she literally had tears in her eyes. She said, wow, where did this come from? And, you know, these are people that play with the Covent Garden Orchestra and they play with the Philharmonic, whatever they're doing, great world-class musicians. And to get that kind of reaction after an exhausting sessions. It's not like we or me was trying to create something new. We were not trying to make a statement. What we were simply trying to do was to communicate in the most beautiful, in the most genius of ways through Ted's music, the concept of human and inanimate living side by side. It is here and it is here to stay. And all we were trying to do is to communicate this that would reach every single corner of this planet. Maestro Ted Joselson, Dr. Susan Lim, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast to discuss the Lim fantasy of companionship and the companionship of concertos. Thank you, Max. Thank you very much.